Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's Memorial Day weekend, which means we're featuring a previously aired interview this week. It's a good one. My 2015 conversation with Ruth Fine, the curator of Procession, the Art of Norman Lewis. The exhibition was one of last year's biggest critical hits, as was Fine's exceptional Yale University Press published catalog. Each provides a long overdue, much needed look at one of America's pioneering post-war painters. Along with Clifford Still and Jackson Pollock, although in different ways, Lewis was in the vanguard of American abstract painting in the years after World War II. No one was more successful in bringing sociocultural content into abstraction than Lewis, an accomplishment that artists have picked up on in the last decade or two, but which historians and museums had been slow to acknowledge. This is the first retrospective exhibition of Lewis's work since he died in 1979. I spoke with Fine before the exhibition debuted last year at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. Next week, it opens at the Eamon Carter Museum in Fort Worth, where it will remain on view through August 21st. Ruth Fine, after the break. A new immersive exhibition is on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Boutra Khalili's The Mapping Journey Project tells the personal stories of people forced by political and economic circumstances to travel illegally across Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. Each journey is narrated by the person who experienced it and, shown together, the stories take on questions of citizenship, community, and political freedom. Don't miss this singular experience. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, is on view now at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. The first U.S. museum survey outside California in nearly 40 years, the exhibition explores Irwin's work in the pivotal decade of the 1960s and culminates in an immersive new installation created in response to the Hirshhorn's unique architecture. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and explore the limits of perception with a modern master. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Ellipsis, on view April 15th through July 2nd. Ellipsis is a group exhibition that invites visitors to listen, look, touch, taste, and pause, celebrating the senses and embracing a range of individual and collective experiences. Spanning artistic practices and eras, Ellipsis brings out unexpected variations in perception, interaction, and awareness, featuring works by Roman Ondak, Janet Cardiff, Felix Gonzalez-Torres, Odilon Redon, John Bresland, Thilius Moss, and Claudia Rankine and John Lucas, in addition to a rotating selection of works by Doris Salcedo, Jean Arp, Ellsworth Kelly, Richard Serra, Getty Saboni, and Mark Rothko. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Ruth Fine, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I haven't seen the show because as we tape this, you're still installing it, of course. But as I read the catalog, I found myself wondering once again how it was this show hasn't been done since since 1976. And I sense you wondered the same thing because it's kind of how you close <laughs> your catalog essay. Obvious question. Why has no one done the big Norman Lewis show in 40 years? I don't have an answer for that. I think one of the things about Norman Lewis is that it's not easy to come up with a signature image for any period of his art. And it's a lot of work to go out and see a lot of paintings, but that's true for every exhibition. 
I think Lewis has been misunderstood in various ways. I hope this show will open up people's approach to him. I think he's been categorized as an abstract expressionist, and I don't think that's really true except for some works. He's been categorized as a social realist. I think that's true for very few works. I think all of the labels that have been given him are not appropriate, and I don't have a label to give him now. As I was just saying to the fantastic staff installing the show here at the Pennsylvania Academy, I'm glad I was an old person when I did this because it's the first exhibition I felt I had so many questions about and felt so uncomfortable with my knowledge about. And if I was young, I would be really nervous about that. Being an old person, I don't mind saying I don't know the answer to that. And with Lewis, I have a lot of I don't know the answers to, including your first question. Why do you think or or am I not supposed to ask you questions? No, that's okay. I mean, I, I it's it's ever since I first heard about the show a couple of years ago, I've 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 wondered, I mean, the artists who explored figuration and abstraction and in different media concurrently for parts of their careers, I think have sometimes failed to fit a certain New York-centric narrative about how post-World War II American art happened. And maybe he falls into that? Oh, I think he certainly falls into that. He had the added burden. He was, he was African-American. And so that's going back and reviewing, I think, most generations before our own of African-American artists has to be done for other artists as well. So someone I hope will do some of the other people, like Lewis's contemporary Merton Simpson, who was an abstract artist that I think really could do a looking at, a close looking at. I think people are more familiar with the work than they are with Lewis the man or or Lewis's life. And I'm not sure how important it is to lay out some biography, but it's probably a teeny bit important. Lewis is a New Yorker through and through. He studies at New York schools and with artist groups going back to the 1930s, is politically engaged and so on. Is there anything in his biography that, that you think is particularly important to set up or understand before we get into the work itself? Well, I think the fact that he always was certainly connected very strongly to New York and connected very strongly to left-wing causes in New York and also involved in a big picture when he was at the Harlem Community Arts Center as both a teacher and a student. He got involved with Vaclav Vitlachev, whose name I may be mispronouncing, and learned about the modernism that was happening downtown at a very early moment. Because of their political connections, he became very close with Ad Reinhardt at a very early moment. And I think all of these uptown, downtown connections for Lewis played a role. He was very tuned into what was happening in New York, and I think that probably was most important to his evolution. He talked about going to the Museum of Modern Art once a week. As a young artist, he drew at the Museum of Modern Art. He was a very curious, intelligent man with a, a very interesting library, examples of which we'll have in the show. Very well read. My guess is he saw everything there was to see and absorbed every bit of it. 
And I think he had a breath that was quite extraordinary and curiosity that was quite extraordinary. As far as his biography itself, I mean, as you say, he was born in Harlem. He was in Harlem most of his life until he moved downtown in the late 1960s. He traveled in Europe only once in 1957. That had an impact on him. He traveled in merchant marines or um, situation as a young man, right? And that gave him a kind of international curiosity and an awareness of other people. There's a, I've read a lot of his letters, which are, are not published, and various notes that he did. He was just probing. He was always probing, I think, from very early on till very late. And he didn't ever want to be defined by any one thing. And I think that showed in his life, and it also shows in his work. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think it does show in the work. I think a certain kind of intellectual, I don't know if restlessness is the word, but a, a refusal to be pinned down to a, an image, a style, a, a mark is, is certainly in the oeuvre. So, so let's dive into the work. Lewis makes, starts out making figurative paintings throughout the 30s and well into the 1940s. We've been kind of dancing around the idea of Lewis's socio-political engagement, not just in his life, but how it carries into his work, and, and when we talked a moment ago about why recognition for Lewis has trailed some others, maybe it's because that wasn't a super common thing for New York painters to explore in their work in the 1940s. But there's one watercolor in particular, it's dual-sided, dates from 41 and 42, that you noted more than suggests, reveals a, a certain American duality, and maybe that's a good place to start. Well, that double-sided watercolor, much of Lewis's work is undated. And so one side of that is dated, the other side is not dated. I'm guessing it was done in the late 1930s. And that's a kind of rural landscape that we're guessing was done in the South when he was there in 1938. He, believe it or not, was sent by the WPA to the South to set up schools. You can imagine how he was welcomed and received there. But there's this, it's not exactly a sublime landscape, but it is a landscape on one side of the sheet and on the other side of the sheet done later is a police beating of an African-American man that looks so much like what we see on television now that it's shocking and frightening and depressing. And he always said, he said that he started out with political content in his work, but that he ultimately realized that the people that needed to see the political content weren't probably going to see his work anyway, and that that wasn't the way to be a political activist, that the way to be a political activist was to be a political activist and to have the work be on its own. Uh, throughout the exhibition, we're going to be, have some quotes by Lewis, and he's always emphasizing the importance of the aesthetic on in the work, that the, the, the work has to be rooted in aesthetic issues. And so that recto verso watercolor shows both the political side and by the 40s he was saying he'd given up politics and clearly he hadn't and he never did. It was never not an issue to him, no matter how much he went against it. I mean, there are people who get very upset with the idea that I argue with things that, in this case, Lewis, but other artists say. And you just can't take any artist's words as verbatim as to what they absolutely believed in any way. And so I think Lewis's work shows 
one thing and the words say something else and they're in conflict. But much of the work is in conflict as well. And what's so interesting about him for me is that right when he's doing the toughest civil rights march paintings, toughest in one way, or, or civil rights paintings, some of them are just totally tough and blooded. Bloody and others are about black and white community. But at the same time he was doing that, he was doing quite abstract, romantic, landscape-based images in the same year. And so he was always kind of coming from different places. It's fascinating. This is skipping ahead a bit, but I think I'm okay with that because we're discussing subject in the work. You note in a number of places in your essay, and I think in, in some of the work, it's particularly evident that Lewis wasn't shy about referring to the Ku Klux Klan in his work. Do you have a favorite example or two of that, or, or a painting or two that, that kind of best... Well, I mean, the strongest example of that is the painting called American Totem, 1960. I mean, you can't get any better than that, I don't think, can you? It's a painting that shows, it's on a, on a the, the background is entirely black. There is a figure in in white that kind of comes into focus as a figure when when you see a neck and two eyes and then a pointy hat a pointy hat was there any particular reason in 1960 i mean other than the obvious but i mean was there a particular event that that you think motivated that painting i don't think there was any particular event i mean lewis's files are totally filled with articles cut from newspapers and magazines about racism in America. I mean, they're also riddled with all kinds of musical references and everything else. So everything is in them. But he was totally conscious and aware of the struggles that uh, were going on in this country uh, with the Freedom Rides. You know, I mean, the painting, there's a painting called Redneck Birth and a painting called Rednecks. They are red, bloody paintings. They are abstractions. If you didn't know the titles, you might not know what they were. And one of the real problems with Lewis is that so many titles have gotten lost. And there may be many more paintings that have references to civil rights issues than we know. And some paintings have been given titles that were not Lewis's. I don't think Lewis ever gave a specific instance as a title. So that there's a painting in the show called... And we titled things Title Unknown because in the Willard Gallery archives, and Willard Gallery was Lewis's dealer from 46 to 64, 65, no canvas that I saw a record of was without a title. There are lots of works on paper without titles, so I was not uncomfortable leaving works on paper untitled. I think for most of these paintings, if one, someone had the time, and I certainly didn't and never will, to sit down and measure paintings and try and figure out dates and relationships, it would be possible to attach titles to paintings eventually. But, I, yeah, I don't think anything happened that inspired, any one thing happened that inspired that painting. He knew everything that was happening, and horrible things were happening all the time, everywhere. He's one of the few American painters of that generation who moves back and forth between works that are only black and white and works that are rich with color and has equal facility with both. And and I think these the, the paintings you just mentioned are, 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 are good examples of that. 
we were we were noting a moment ago that that he starts out as a figurative painter and kind of gradually transitions to great fluency with abstraction and that that happens kind of around 1945 is there a key moment or a key painting or a key, key series of paintings in which we see that happening or is it broader and slower than that i think it's broader and slower than that there is a painting called composition one which i i have a feeling may be the first painting that could be called totally abstract from that title and i think that title was his title but through 19 especially 44 45 there is a real transition from figuration and i think almost all of his figurative paintings have key influence from cubism i don't think of lewis ever really as a realist in the traditional sense of that word. I think cubism was critical to him. He certainly saw the, all of the shows at MoMA that would have led towards abstraction. Uh, but 45, we have, there, the first section of the show is called In the City. And In the City is divided into three sections. The first one is looking at art where we have drawings he did based on uh, African masks that were at MoMA in 1935, and one painting that is absolutely, in my mind, inspired by a Kandinsky that was on view in MoMA in 1936. The color in that painting really... Well, yeah, and that painting has been published since 1946, and many people have said to me, oh, you'll have to convince me that's 1936. Well, if you look at... It, it's signed and dated on the painting, and it's it's clearly 1936 and was published in Lewis's lifetime as 1936, but it was later published in 46. And I'm sure that was a typo. And so many people who I showed that painting to said, oh, I don't believe it was 36. Well, it was. I don't know anything else like it. But if he was looking at African masks in 35, why wouldn't he be looking at Kandinsky in 36? Or Van Gogh, for, for, that, for, for that matter, in 1937. The 1936 painting is titled Fantasy. His Van Gogh riff from the next year is um, a painting of shoes titled Buddies. That is, the, the, the catalog is ridiculously lavishly illustrated, not just with Lewis's. The thing is lavish, ridiculously lavishly illustrated. So it's, yeah, these connections in, in, in the book are, are, are hard to miss. I guess maybe this is where I should point out, given that I keep complimenting the catalog, that moment of disclosure, my, my first book is being published by UC Press, which published the catalog. It, it, it's kind of interesting to me that we're talking about these paintings kind of in, in, in the late 30s and early 40s, because I think that one of the, the false narratives around Lewis is that he gets lumped in with late developing painters of that gener you know of, of the generation after Pollock which is which is false so in 45 he's making ab abstract paintings and that's very much within the New York abstract mainstream so outside New York Clifford still is making abstract paintings since 42 or 43 but there are still representational elements in de Kooning and Pollock in 1945 and Franz Klein doesn't start making you know those big booming abstract paintings for which he's famous until 1950. Absolutely and Franz Klein was very very complimentary about Lewis he admired him uh, there's an interesting quote by him as being one of the underknown painters of his time. Yeah it's it's I mean it, I, I think that as 
people read the book and see the show that they're going to understand why why I keep bringing us back to my own confusion. Yes, why not? <laughs> Mine too. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that's that's interesting to me, speaking of other painters finding Lewis's work of interest and Lewis hoovering up visuals all over New York, is Lewis does seem to be looking at, at, at Clifford Still in the 50s and 60s at a time when Still was was in New York, but you know quickly made himself difficult. I can't imagine that the two were pals. Still was a McCarthyite right winger, and Lewis was anything but. Yeah, it seems like Ed Reinhardt was the person he was a serious pal with. That that he was close, and I mean there are so many fascinating stories surrounding that. Uh, Ad Reinhardt's wife, Rita, studied with Lewis at the Jefferson School and remembers him with much love and respect. I was able to speak to many people who had Lewis as a teacher. He was a very admired teacher and and giving teacher. I mean, I think he was a tough, you know, hard-smoking, hard-drinking like everybody was in that time, but he was he took young artists seriously. I think he took art seriously, totally seriously. And, you know, he talks in um, a video that was made in 1976 about how he thought if you really worked hard enough and did good work, that was all it really took. And he, you know, later realized that playing the game was part of it as well. Uh, that you had to go out and meet people. And, and of course, being black, he probably wasn't invited to all the parties that white artists would have been invited to, even though he was in a wonderful gallery and close to Marion Willard and her family. There are wonderful photographs of Lewis with the Willard, Willard Johnson family uh, out in Locust Valley. I mean, his I mean, hoovering is exactly the right thing. He just absorbed everything that was put in front of him that was of interest to him. The conversations must have been extraordinary. He and a woman, Joan, who was his partner, companion in the late 40s, early 50s, apparently used to have the equivalent of salons in their apartment where people came and talked. I just want to go back to something you said a while ago, which was, talking about him both as a colorist and someone who worked in black and white. And during his lifetime, he was mainly admired as a colorist. Art, art journal articles and interviews with young artists constantly refer to his brilliant use, brilliant and subtle use of color. And, you know, I think the great Studio Museum exhibition in 19, uh, late 1990s called The Black Paintings you know, have given a kind of base for how how people view Lewis. And even in that show, there were a lot of paintings with color. But the idea of a, being a painter of black paintings took hold. And one of the things I hope is that, that this exhibition counters that. I mean, there are a lot of black paintings in it, but the color in this exhibition is extraordinary. He was so subtle in his use of color. My guest is Ruth Fine. We'll be right back after a break. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. 
A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit kimballart.org for more information. On the edge of the Gobi Desert, the Mogao Cave Temples dating from the 4th century are filled with exquisite wall paintings and sculpture that bore witness to the cultural exchanges along the Silk Road. On view now at the Getty, Cave Temples of Dunhuang provides the rare opportunity to explore full-scale, hand-painted replica caves. View paintings on silk, embroidered fabrics, and rare manuscripts, including the Diamond Sutra, the world's oldest printed book, and step into a virtual, immersive experience of an 8th-century cave. Visit getty.edu to learn more. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents High Society, the Portraits of Franz X. Winterhalter, celebrating the elegance and unrivaled brilliance of the renowned portraitist of 19th-century European aristocracy. Some 45 master paintings are complemented by clothing created by sought-after fashion designer Charles Frederick Worth and his contemporaries. Now on view. Visit mfah.org slash highsociety for more. And now back to my conversation with Ruth Fine. Earlier, we discussed how Lewis doesn't have a signature move or a signature image, that he, he had this real fluidity. But one of the things you noticed that he uses a lot, if that's the right phrase, is a procession motif. I think that's your phrase. What is that and, and kind of how, when and why does it enter Lewis's work? Well, of course, that's the title of the show. And I picked... Procession. Yeah, Procession, The Art of Norman Lewis. And I picked that because that did seem like a motif that went through. And as far as I can tell, the first clear procession dates to 1947, which was the year of the first uh, Labor Day parade in Harlem. And this is a dated painting. And I think that had an impact on him. You can't prove it. He doesn't talk about it. You can't prove almost anything, as far as I can tell. Um, so we went from the Caribbean processions that went throughout Harlem, and of course the Garveyite processions in the 20s would have been something. He said there were lots of parades in Harlem, but the painting, and it's an un, it's a painting without a title, but I'm pretty sure it's a procession. It has given titles, and it, it went from there to the late 1950s when he was in Europe and did a lot of carnival paintings and carnival processional carnival processions, and then the civil rights processions. And so it seemed like the one thing that there was a handle for that, that carried over from the 40s until he died. And so that's the origin of, of my thinking about that. But as I said, there was no moment when he was only doing processions, as far as I know. There's a painting from 1965 that is a title unknown. It's the cover image of the catalog, in fact which has the, the parenthetical, which I presume is yours. No, it's not um, mine. It, not yours. I didn't yours. give any parenthetical title. Ah, that's why. Well, that, that there weren't any is why I was guessing it was yours. But the, but the parenthetical is March on Washington. Do you have, and, and it's, a, it's one of the painting, I mean, it's an abstract painting, but once one sees the parenthetical, one sees procession, one sees movement, one sees left to right, progression, literally progression progressive progression. How do you feel about that parenthetical, Ben? And, and oh, sure. do you think he was that direct? No, absolutely not. But that was the, the title that the owner has had on it since they bought it. 
And, you know, recently someone, there's a painting out in the world called uh, Detroit Riot, and there's no way that that was Lewis's title. I just don't think he ever gave a title that was that specific. I think he was always more metaphoric, more more layered. I don't think he wanted to be locked in. I don't think he wanted any painting to be locked in. I think he wanted... I think he really did believe in the power of art and the possibility that a painting would inspire thought in its viewers. And I think he wanted to leave that possibility open to people. I think that was really important to him, frankly. But the titles he gives are, are interesting. One, one that has been in literature recently, I think it was prominently featured in Katie Siegel's Since 45 book a few years ago. I think of the paintings not in the show. It's titled Every Atom Glows, the MFA Boston from 1951. Is that an example of, of a Lewis title? Yes, that's a Lewis title. And is that as, do, do, do you think that title is directly references Cold War Atomic? I, I do. I do. And there's an essay in the catalog about that. And uh, there's actually an essay I found relatively recently in his files about that. And so I do think so. But I still don't think that locks it into a specific day or a specific place. And that's what I think he was opposed to doing. That essay is, 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 is not by you, actually. It's, it's Adriana Campbell who... who addresses that that painting and it's it's kind of a, <laughs> one of the we were talking about the black and white and the color thing and it's one of those things where i'm on the, on the page on which we see every atom glows the facing page has a black and white painting and then you turn the page of the catalog and boom there's a uh, orange and red painting titled flames to freeze that is an example of his <laughs> ability to mix it up it's really really striking I mean, if you're interested, the reason I tried not to use the best-known paintings, the painting in the show that relates to Every Atom Glows is a painting called Blending. From 1951, the same year. And so they're closely related, and I just thought it would be good to get out there something that had been less reproduced and was less well-known. So that's, that's just my curatorial tendency. I'm less concerned with signature images than with related things to expand our knowledge of the artist. We've been talking about ways in which Lewis's abstraction had ties to the black experience in America. And as I think we noted earlier, he himself maintained that there was no link between his, his art and his politics. And, and, and you don't agree. Are there other specific, and we, and we talked about the, the, the painting that referenced the Klan and, and the marches. Are there other specific paintings that you think are really good examples of his engaging race in America in a way that is maybe less evident than a painting with a, a pointy Klan hooded hat? Well, there's Journey to the End, which is another black and white painting that actually fascinates me because it has an overlay of what I think of as as Crayola crayon flesh color in it. And I, I, I went to that painting thinking, oh my God, this must, must be discolored white and had two conservators look at it. And they said, no, it wasn't discolored white. It was flesh color, Crayola crayon flesh color. Well, the idea that, you know, a black painter is painting Crayola color flesh color over a white clan-related painting I thought was pretty interesting. There's a painting called Alabama. So I think all of these paintings have racial overtones, the rednecks, redneck birds. I don't think, 
I don't think it, I don't know that it's always obvious, but I think he is who he is, and he doesn't change who he is, uh, and his interests vary, and many of the works are purely abstract, and that's what mattered to him. I think in his conscious approach to what he viewed art as being, he was very concerned with abstraction and calligraphy. I mean, the calligraphic aspects of the work are extraordinary. We haven't talked about the works on paper, and it was the works on paper by Lewis that initially inspired my interest in him. I think they're absolutely extraordinary. There's a book in the show from his library on Chinese calligraphy. He was very interested in calligraphy. But it, it's all of a piece, in a way, with an emphasis on some things at one time and other things at another time. At least that's how I read it. There's a 1960 untitled work from the Pennsylvania Academy's collection that's ink on paper that I wrote down as a, as a, as a good example of a work on paper to bring up. It seems to reference everything from Chinese calligraphy to, to Max Ernst. Maybe that's a good work to talk about why the works on paper brought you into the artist in the show. Well, again, the works on paper are as varied as the canvases. And one of my feelings has always been what held Lewis's work together was for him the notion of process. I mean, he uses an ink line in a way that I know no other artist using it. It's drawn and then it's pulled. He, his works on paper are referred to as oil on paper. Uh, I'm not convinced they all even have oil on them, but many of them have pastel on them as well as oil. They are oil. The oil was all seeped out of them, like Degas did, because there's no oil staining on the verso. You don't have 40-year-old oils on paper with absolutely no oil seepage, I don't think. And many of them do have oil seepage on the back. So the, paper, the works on paper still need a, a lot of study. He used masking techniques. He used various kinds of layering and rubbing and blotting and I think frottage techniques, which would connect with Ernst in some ways. He, again, they're, they're absolutely fascinating. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to have a specific section in the catalog that just reproduced the gallery of the works on paper to emphasize their unique beauty and importance. And of course, there's a section in the catalog devoted to the prints as well, which often are left out of the mix in many artists' work. But the prints were critical. I mean, he, he was a printer for other artists. He, according to record, printed for Lee Krasner and printed for Will Barnett and did his own lithographs. And then he shifted to etching and worked with Bob Blackburn and did very exper experimental work. Very few editions were pulled. So he was interested in working on paper in, in many ways. And of course, there are far more works on paper. And some of them are just plain line drawings, beautiful contour line drawings. But I still look at them and I can't figure out how they're made. And, you know, I've been looking at works on paper all my life. There's nothing more horrible than for me to say, I really don't know how that was done. I looked at one work with several paper conservators, and quite honestly, they couldn't either. So they're not easy to deal with, and they're magnificently beautiful, really beautiful. And there are a lot of them in the show. The show has about 60 paintings and about 
30 works on paper, and then there's a separate exhibition of the prints in Pennsylvania Academy's historic landmark building called Stone and Metal, the Prince of Norman Lewis. So the Academy was wonderful in giving this exhibition a lot of space. Uh, Some of the large late paintings are just as you enter the show so that you kind of I hope get blown away by the end before you even see the beginning and then you have to come out to the end again and then a separate show of the prints so that we could put out every aspect of Lewis's work. It's really exciting to watch come together. We've talked a good bit about Lewis's engagement with civil rights issues in in his work. In 1963, along with a number of other black artists, he formed a group called Spiral, a group that they thought would discuss, quote, what should be their attitudes and commitments as Negro artists in the present struggle for civil rights. Was that group important to Lewis in ways that went beyond including civil rights-related content in the work? Not sure I know how to answer that. He was the president of Spiral, so one thing, one way it could have been important to him is it would have been, he would have had a demonstration of his colleagues' admiration for him, I would think, in terms of his being elected that. He also, in the late 60s, was one of the founders of the Senke Gallery. So I I think, and he left Willard Gallery in the mid-60s, and and there was so much ferment in the African-American artistic community or the country, African-American way, everybody, in, in the 60s that I think the group, the kind of association, I don't know any real record of the conversations, but I think it gave him a base of camaraderie. Spiral, I think he and Bearden were very close. There's a film with wonderful comments on Bearden about Lewis. So I think it was a support group at a time when artists were realizing they needed a support group. And But, you know, he was, he was in many African-American exhibitions, art exhibitions. He was not in others because the fact that he was focusing on issues of abstraction meant that there were those in the African-American community that felt he wasn't doing the right thing, what he should have been doing. And so many shows and books that I would have thought would have included Lewis did not include Lewis. So it wasn't only whatever ostracism he may have had by being African-American and operating in the downtown art world, but similarly, there were issues in the uptown art world. But he was very tied into the founding of the Studio Museum in Harlem and was on a curatorial council for them. He was very supportive of young artists, black and white. And, and I think Spiral, I mean, I, I haven't read anything he said about Spiral, so I, I never like to say what I think an artist thought about something because they're usually wrong. But the evidence for me would be that it would have functioned as, as a community base that was useful. He, of course, was on the picket lines of, uh, against, at the time, the Met did the um, Harlem on My Mind exhibition, which the black community was so upset by because it was a documentary show and paid no attention. I mean, it, it introduced the Vanderzee, of course, but there were not uh, Harlem residents from the black community involved with the creation of that show. So whatever, whatever demanded an activist presence, I think Lewis was part of it. I think he believed in it. And I think Spiral would have kind of given cement to these activities at the very beginning of the 60s. 
Harlem on my mind was, of course, the infamous Metropolitan Museum of Art exhibition. There's a picture in the catalog of Lewis picketing outside the museum wearing a placard. Spiral's first group show was, I think, in 1965, and it was all works in black and white. And that, that show was in, on, on, on Christopher Street. The group was kind of broad enough in its exhibition agenda, if that's the right word. It's probably not. That same year, in fact, really at the same time, they also showed together at a temple in Yonkers. So they weren't kind of limiting themselves to downtown by, by any stretch. I think they wanted to show wherever they would have an opportunity to show. I mean, people who were eager to get their work out wherever it was going to be seen. We have some wonderful documentary materials in uh, the exhibition from Lewis's archives of several exhibitions of African-American artists. And I only use the ones that he was in, but there are in his archives announcements of shows that he was not in. And finally, in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, so well into his career, Lewis creates the largest canvases he makes as a painter, a group of, I think, 10 works. So their large size could signal a special project, of course. Why, why did he go big? Why did he go that big for 10 works? Is there something that holds those 10 together? Only their size. They all measure about 72 by 87. Some are horizontal, some are vertical. He bought a studio downtown in 1967-68, and by 69, he could work in it. So I think he was so thrilled to have a larger space to work in that he worked on larger canvases. They were, they are a kind of summary of many themes that he worked on before. Some are clearly civil rights related, some are clearly procession related. The earliest that I know of from 1969 is called Afternoon, and it has landscape elements. It also has procession elements. I think it could be read in, in a number of different ways, but I, I don't I don't really think he thought of them as a series per se, but I could be wrong. There are they were followed by a group of paintings that he did think of as a series that are not as large. There's a as a group of paintings called Sea Change. Many of them are numbered, and then there's another group of paintings that just had numbers that are quite minimal and they're reproduced in the catalog but not there's there's none of those in the show you know at a certain point there just was no more room so he did work in series but i'm not convinced that group was a series and i don't know why they stopped in 72 maybe they came to the end of 72 73 he went to greece and started thinking about the sea change paintings and the and the uh, group of have these black, blue, minimal, minimal paintings. I don't know that there are ten. I know of nine or ten of these paintings. There could be more. I I saw as much as I could. There are no written records of Lewis's work. I I followed as many tracks as I could in the time that I had. It's a lot, and so I I, I make a certain number of educated guesses. But as I said, there's also huge amounts of uncertainty because I know of a lot of things that I didn't have time to see. I've seen some of them and not all of them. And every day, almost every day now, I hear about more. Or once the show opens, I'll hear about even more. So, so my guess is there are approximately 10. Maybe he didn't have any room to do anymore. Maybe he had 10 stretchers made and, and that was it. I, I, I don't know. 
No records. That's that's what's difficult. No records. So the Willard Gallery records, which were fabulous to have access to, no records of the works on paper, and there are many, many more works on paper throughout the career. Makes the catalog all that much more important to document. Ruth Fine, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thanks so much for talking with me. I hope I see you at the show. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.